Welcome to the Within Us podcast, where we're all about well-being, mind, body, emotion, and spirit. This is your place for the transformational tools and strategies to tap into mindfulness, emotional awareness, and wellness for the collective and for your life right now. My name is Azriela Jankovic, and I am so glad that you are here. Today's episode is sponsored by Lumen, the first handheld device that can measure your metabolism in a single breath to tell you what fuel source your body is using for energy, fats, or carbs. Lumen's device and app provide you with personalized daily meal recommendations to help you reach your weight, nutrition, or fitness goals, and it has been scientifically validated. If you want to check out how you can hack your metabolism today, visit lumen.me. You can use the code within us 25 to get $25 off at lumen.me. Welcome to the show, my friends. Today is June 3rd, 2020, and there is oh so much going on in the world right now. Welcome to the show, my friends. Today is June 3rd, and there is so much going on in the world. This morning, I woke up to a post on Facebook. Someone was telling me to check my white privilege. And I've been thinking a lot about the racial issues that are surfacing and how important they are. And I've been wanting to make an episode about privilege and race and how we can envision and develop a brighter future in this capacity. Yesterday, I sat down, I recorded for 45 minutes about my experiences studying white teachers in disadvantaged black schools when I was a doctoral student. And my dissertation chair, Dr. Alan Green, he is a black man, and he opened my eyes wide to what was what's going on in the States. And um, I really feel grateful for having learned about those things and for the ability to meet people in different spaces and try to understand what they're going through. So I do want to do an episode about that, but in honest, all honesty, I don't feel emotionally there yet. I don't feel like I am able to encapsulate my thoughts in a way that is going to make enough sense yet that that episode would be effective. So I'm hoping that it's coming. And in the meanwhile, you know, one thing that I've been really present with is how looking at this news footage of what's going on in LA and hearing from some of my friends, some of you who are there, it feels really unsafe for so many people right now. And it's felt unsafe for so many people for so long. It's heartbreaking. This is a very uncomfortable reality that we're dealing with. And I don't have any immediate solutions, but one thing I started thinking about yesterday was imagining the people who are leaving their neighborhoods in, you know, predominantly block, black neighborhoods of Los Angeles and coming into these, you know, predominantly probably white neighborhoods, I would imagine still at this point, of West Los Angeles and looting these high-end stores. What if those people knew each other what if they were friends or what if they had working relationships would this still be going on i don't think so i don't think so and obviously like 
there's a problem with stealing and looting, but there's also a problem with murdering people. And these are super heavy topics. Like um, I feel sad even talking about them. I feel like they're so sharp and they're so bitter and they're so painful, but I think we need to talk about them. And I also think that, you know, we might not be able to solve this problem right away, but I think we have to stay present to the meaning of what's happening and just be open to learning from the other and also befriending the other. I spent an hour on the phone yesterday with one of my listeners who lives in the Palestinian Authority. And this person is technically identifies as a Palestinian. And, um, you know, that's a whole story unto itself. But in any case, I learned so much just from listening to his experience of what's going on right now in his Arab community where he lives and how the government is not helping and how hard it is to find work and how there's so many challenges to even getting internet access or the fact that he has to buy a computer in cash in order to have procure a computer and yet he can't find a job so there's this whole chicken and an egg problem of like can't get a computer can't get a job can't get a job because you don't have a computer and you're just hearing about his struggles i i'm i have the privilege of living in israel and you know i can have all sorts of issues and and struggles as an immigrant as a woman or you know as a jew or as a human being in this world but i want to stay open to understanding what he's going through so that in some way even if it's just by making a space for him we can build a better future there's a lot to speak about here and i'm interested to hear from you i'm interested to hear your experiences so do reach out to me and and tell me what's happening in your life what's happening in your world you can message me on facebook you can message me on instagram and you can also connect with me through my website drazi.co that's d-r-a-z-i.co my guest today is really incredible he is a very dear family friend we call him family he is related to my father-in-law actually through marriage and the backstory is that when my father-in-law was a 17 year old high school student in Czechoslovakia he in an effort to pursue a better life came to visit these cousins in the states they were cousins through marriage and actually ended up living with them he was adopted by them he sought political asylum in the United States and it was Rabbi Eli Spitz's parents who were his adoptive parents who took him in and helped him to seek political asylum and build a life based on freedom in the United States so that is how I'm acquainted with my guest today and my guest today also really brings so much wisdom he embodies this idea of what we learned in the ethics of our fathers it asks who is wise one who learns from all it's one of my favorite teachings and I think that Rabbi Eli really embodies that he is a rabbi in the conservative movement of Judaism and if you're familiar with Judaism there are sort of different branches um, that have developed evolved grown sprouted up over time and 
within certain Jewish circles, there is a lot of meaning that's attached to these different spaces. But what I appreciate so much about Ellie is that he learns from people in all different walks of life. When he writes in his book, he quotes people from different backgrounds within Judaism, from the world at large, from other cultures. And there's really this human connection that I've always felt with Ellie and such a, a brightness and such a, a, a commitment to bettering the world that he radiates. So it is an, it's such an honor and a pleasure to have him with me today to introduce you to him. And, you know, I think that so often we can habituate ourselves to seeking out people that are exactly like us who think like we do, who agree with us, who are always saying like me too. And that's wonderful. It's wonderful to have people with whom we're on the same page. But I also think it's wonderful to surround ourselves with people who we can learn from, who might think a little bit differently than we do. And there's so much space for us to learn from what makes people unique. And there's always room to find what we have in common with anyone. We are humans, our tears taste the same, and we can always, always find common ground. So, you know, I imagine right now that if there's one thing people can do, if there's one thing I can do, one thing you can do right now, it's reach out to someone who you haven't always agreed with. Maybe you have different political opinions. Maybe you have different visions for the future. Maybe you've had a falling out and reach out in connection with them and try to find what you have in common and try to avoid arguing just for now, just once and see if you can build bridges because ultimately friends, if we could build bridges, if everyone had a bridge to the other, we had a peaceful bridge to the other, we would have peace. We can do this. You and me, we can do this. This might be about empowerment and gaining agency and voting and politics and systems, but what if it's just about making friends? I believe that it can be. So I hope you're with me and I hope you'll, you'll do that. I hope you will reach out to someone and build a bridge today whether it's online or whether it's a phone call or whether it's writing someone a note or even thanking someone for their impact in your life, someone with whom perhaps you've had a falling out, that can be an incredible thing to do. I actually did that recently. I'm going to tell you more about it in an upcoming show where I talk about what I learned from my black professor. But today we're going to take a little break from that topic and I'm going to share Ellie's voice with you. He's a voice of calm, he's a voice of clarity, and he's a voice of wisdom. So I'm going to offer you a respite from all of that. You're going to get to meet Rabbi Ellie, learn all about him, his book, Does the Soul Survive, and two other of his books. One of them is about his mental health journey, and I have so much admiration for him for sharing that. I'm so inspired by that. And with nothing further, it is my absolute pleasure and honor to introduce you to Rabbi Ellie Spitz.
I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to sit down and speak with you, Rabbi Ellie. Not only about your book, Does the Soul Survive?, but also about this time that we're in. And I think that right now, as we're facing this global situation, unlike any other that we've experienced, we're really coming face to face with life and death. And you've been a rabbi now for 30, 30 plus years. Yeah, 33rd year. My synagogue, yeah. And for you, after having written this book, I know you have so much wisdom and so much to share about the circle of life. So perhaps we can start by your sharing with our listeners about your journey in becoming a rabbi and what you do and, and perhaps your interest in all things spiritual. So it's a treat for me to be with you, Azriella. I had the privilege to share in your wedding in San Diego, to be with you in so many life moments. And life keeps moving on into new terrain. And as you say in the introduction, we find ourselves in what is familiar, familiar people, and yet in an unfamiliar way of communicating and that we're not able to be with each other in person, even if I could fly to Ben-Gurion Airport, which at the moment I can't. So we do live in a moment of disorientation. And I pause with a comment that mashber in Hebrew means crisis. It probably comes from the word shvur, which means broken. And we clearly live in a time in which the world feels very broken, uncertain. And yet that same word, mashber, is used as a birthing stool. Two stones a woman would hold on to in giving birth, probably because the stones were broken. But nonetheless, the teaching is that out of mashber, out of crisis, is the possibility of new beginnings. And that is to hold on to in this moment, that this mashber will open into deliverance and new possibilities. And even this conversation on Zoom, just before I went on with you, I taught a half-hour class, a psalm a day, where I'm coming to people's screens rather than my, as in the past, expecting them to come to me. And what a difference it's made in my opportunity to teach and be present for others. So we are in a time in which having a sense of what matters, matters even more. Because for people who I... Mm, I love that so much. Having a sense. I want to just pause there for a moment. Having a sense of what matters, matters more. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, again, to transition, I was just teaching Psalm 17. And, you know, there's a contrast at the end of Psalm 17, and the last two verses, in which the psalmist contrasts those who live in the world of their acquisitions and their stomach, their materiality, with what he 
knows really matters. So the last line, verse 14, the second to last, is for those by your hand, Adonai, from people of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure, who have children in plenty and leave their abundance to their young ones. That's the world of acquisition. As for me, the last line, in righteousness, may I behold your face, satisfied when I awake with your likeness. The contrast between what really matters, the closing line, may I behold your presence as what really matters. One more little psalm, and then I won't be doing psalms, but I got to make a transition. And that's verse Psalm 23. Because as you were speaking, Azriella, Dr. Azzi, as you were beginning to talk about spirituality, so we naturally turn to Psalms. And Psalm 23 is probably, you know, the most famous. And it begins, you know, Adonai ro'ilo echsar, Adonai is my shepherd, I shall not lack anything. And then verse 4, Gam ki elech begeit salmavet. Also, when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, lo irabra, I shall not fear, ki imadi, because you are with me. So a couple of comments in that regard. One is we are in a time of the shadow of death. Sal, gate sal mavet. Fortunately, for most of us, we are protected. For most of us, our health is intact. For most of us, we're inconvenienced and not sick. And yet for all of us, there is a quality of vulnerability that I've never experienced in my life. When I go to the grocery store, I feel like I'm taking my life into my own hands. And that quality of fear of the unknown, of literally the fear of death before me, I've never experienced before. And I've been in other situations that evoked fear, but not this constancy of the shadow. So that's one piece. But the other is low. Uh, one second. Ki elech. So I will be walking. Gam ki elech begeit salmavet. I will be walking through that valley of the shadow of death. That we should. The, the comfort now is to know this is in process and to know that of the terrible things that have occurred in the past, and there have been many awful things, we as a people, we as individuals have walked through them to the, the other side. And that key verb is ki elech, I will walk. And that's to live with great faith, that the ability of strength is to look at reality in the face, to acknowledge harsh reality, the details honestly, but to do so with this quality of faith, this trust that things will get better. And that's lo ir ra ra, I will not fear the evil. I will not fear bad. My friend, my teacher, Rabbi Harold Kushner, says that the most repeated line in Hebrew scripture he has a book that's called Conquering Fear. It was written after September 11th. And he, in that book, will say the most repeated line in Tanakh is, you shall not fear. 
And ultimately, that's the gift of faith. However one understands God, however one understands faithfulness, the ability to believe that things will get better, that there will be another side, is to live life with hope, to live life where one doesn't get pulled into the spiral of depression, where things feel like they're closing in. To be in the place of faith is to see possibility. See possibility. I, I love that so much. And your, the metaphor of this brokenness, that this is also the stones upon which a birth will emerge, that there is a birth going on here. And that even the concrete example that you mentioned of your now having this convenient access to your congregants. Yeah, absolutely. And, absolutely. It's, and, and being open to possibility, these are the blossoming possibilities. Right. And not just congregants. My conversation this morning had people from around the country tuning in because, you know, you can do that on the screen. In we, until 10 weeks ago, weren't mining that opportunity. Now it's a given that we can not only do this, but we can record it, we can post it, people can watch it later. The possibilities of caring and sharing have expanded exponentially. Oh, I love that. The possibilities of caring and sharing have expanded exponentially. How beautiful. It's just, it's incredible to think about that and how it took this pandemic to open our eyes, to force our eyes open to the possibilities in, in a certain way. Yeah. I want to revisit the psalm that you share and this idea that you speak of, of walking in the valley of the shadow of death. And even your own personal experience, Rabbi Eli, of going out into the public sphere and, and this feeling, the sense of taking your life, as you, as you explained, taking your life into your own hands. I'm wondering how you juxtapose this experience with the concept of your faith and the idea of not living in fear. How do you do both at the same time? Well... I do live with fear, and fear is important, just like pain is important. You know, a person who doesn't feel, fill in the blank, is living less of a life. A person who doesn't feel pain has the, has the danger of allowing toes. If there's neuropathy and you don't feel your toes, they can become gangrenous. gangrenous. It's one of the problems and threats of diabetes. Likewise, in one's own life, not to have the fear of consequences means you could run into the street and get hurt. And so I do live with fear because there is reason to. My son, Joey, was reading a book that he told me about last week called Good to Great. And he described research on POWs and I'm drawing a blank on the name of the person who did this research, but they found that POWs who were the most optimistic were the most likely to break down because 
they had in their mind, I will be released, and they had the scenario, and then when it didn't happen, they were disappointed and unraveled. And in, this, this, in that focus, they found that the qualities for POWs, American POWs in Vietnam, I assume, to do well were the people that could simultaneously look reality squarely, honestly, see the dangers, not create false expectations of what was before him or her, and simultaneously on some deep level believed that they would yet gain freedom. They may not know how, they didn't know when, but they did believe on this core level of faith that they would find redemption. And those people who could hold on to those two poles, honestly looking at the dangers and feeling the pain, and simultaneously buttressed with hope, that was core, that can only be called faith. Because when you don't know how it's gonna end and when it's gonna end, it's not analytic, it's not intellectual. It can be based on the past. It can be based on the bigger picture that in the past people have emerged. But it's more than that, it's dispositional. A sense that ultimately good will prevail. That light will shine and overcome darkness. I really appreciate I, I really appreciate this on so many levels and hearing you speak about the intelligence of fear and the purpose of fear. I think oftentimes we can receive messages in, in, in our societies that we need to be strong all the time, or perhaps that we need to be positive all the time. But it sounds like your message is a little bit different than that. That's right. The message is to be grounded in reality. And that means to see danger and to honor it and to learn how best to walk through it. You know, where are the minefields when you're walking? And yet, simultaneously, with open eyes from the heart, from the spirit, to believe this too, I will walk through this. I will survive. I will even thrive. I will even thrive. Incredible. As you transition, Azriella, show another book because this was what we were focused in on. Healing wow. from Despair is a book I wrote later that dealt with my own journey in my 20s through clinical depression and hospitalization for suicidal feelings. And that's a book that is choosing wholeness in a broken world. But the book that began my writing in terms of books is the one that you're sharing and has been my most popular, Does the Soul Survive? A Jewish Journey to Belief in Afterlife, Past Lives, and Living with Purpose. And I would underline the last piece, which is ultimately what I, as a student of Judaism and a student of life, have learned, is that when one does believe, as I have grown to, in survival of consciousness, which is survival of the soul, it only adds greater urgency to living now too. 
And now I, I welcome any questions about that journey to belief in afterlife. Well, Rabbi Ali, you're so prolific. You have written now these books. You have another book on wholeness and meditation that is so incredible. I mean, we could really go in a number of different directions. But I think that because you're so open and sharing your story, uh, your journey to mental well-being. I'm going to start in, a, in an odd place. And the odd place is an insight of the psychologist Alfred Adler that if you want to meet and know a person quickly, a place to do so is ask for his or her earliest memory. For what a person holds on to consciously as their earliest memory is often a core element of who they are and even more could be a hologram for a fuller understanding of them. And for me, my earliest memory, I was just thinking about this the other day, was returning home, having come home from synagogue as a child, where I would go with my father and brother in the old school form of only the guys went to synagogue and my mother stayed home with my sisters to make lunch. And coming home and, um, chanting the Adon Olam that I had learned. I was probably four years old, and I could hold on, and I still can hold on to her joy, my mother's reaction of joy, to my singing of Adon Olam, which is to say my earliest memory is of finding joy and learning Jewishly, spiritually, expressing it, and a heart connection with my mother and more than just my mother through her with the larger world. And so this quest and connection of prayer, of synagogue is grounded in my deepest parts. I became a lawyer after being a student at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, which included being there during the Yom Kippur War in part because after the Yom Kippur War and being an undergrad largely at Hebrew University, I needed a break and was not able to immediately go back into Israel of 1974, a very tense place. So I opted to go to law school and the selection of negatives, became a lawyer, worked as a lawyer for several years, Developed encephalitis, I was not, which is a swelling of the brain, and was unable to continue to concentrate at work. And took off from work, decided to travel. And this is a thumbnail sketch of what's contained in the book, Healing from Despair. Healing from Despair. And in that, in that travel, I won't tell the whole story, I began to unravel that led ultimately to needing to return to America, also having run out of money, after <laughs> what was to be a five-week trip became about 10 months, and I was unraveling and entered into a deep depression. And it was suicidal in terms of wanting to turn off the pain of my great beating up on myself. In my case, my pain was triggered by chemical changes 
that were related to the encephalitis, probably. But underneath it was simply a psychological dynamic that didn't have the normal cushion that I would have had. And so to tell the story in brief, in Houston, I was visiting with my brother, Mark, who was then an intern, along with Azzy's uh, father and mother-in-law, mm -hmm. who were like brothers and sisters to me, much beloved. I was in Houston at their medical centers, their, their doctors, and I would wind up checking myself into a mental hospital because I didn't want them to be responsible for my suicidal thoughts. And I would escape from that hospital because I was suicidal. And ultimately come out of that in the third hospital, having checked myself back in, third hospital electroconvulsive therapy lifted the clouds and left me in the following place. It left me in a place of still not being able to go to work, having experienced the pain of suicidal clinical despair, which is enormously dangerous and painful, and uncertain of my future. So my mush bear, my crisis, was full-blown, and it was a birth stool to give me permission to shift from being a lawyer, which I had done for three years, to exploring my passion, which had taken me to Israel as an undergrad, which was to study Jewish philosophy and psychology at Hebrew University. And because I couldn't really go back to work, I wound up going mid-year on a trial basis to what is now American Jewish University in Los Angeles to see if rabbinical school was something I could do. And it was hard, my concentration was not there initially, but that's close to 40 years ago. I, mean, I laugh at myself to think I'm 66 in terms of these years get bigger in number, but the bottom line is it allowed me to learn a great deal it allowed me to learn that I, who have liked to think, regained my footing, largely regained my stability and equanimity in life, am also, as any person, unable to shoulder so much weight. The image I use, because it's what I felt, is that we all bear weight on our shoulders, and at a certain point, if it's not balanced, if we're not taking care, we can throw our back out. I have thrown my back out physically, and I've not been able to get out of bed. It's been years, but I know that experience. And I know it on the emotional level, that for different reasons, our backs can be vulnerable. Our brains are chemical laboratories, and our brain chemistry for us for different reasons can become awry. Some of us may need medication to produce the chemicals that our brains aren't producing in the natural way. And that's no different than any other physical part of our beings. But all of us emotionally can have our brain chemistry thrown off and not unlike weighing ourselves in using our bodies in ways that are unhealthy can 
literally find ourselves flat on our back. So the first thing I gained was humility and the sense that we're all vulnerable, that that's the human condition. And I honor it. We are all it. vulnerable, everyone, no matter how much we that's can glorify right. a human being. And I think it happens across cultures. Even right. those individuals are human. Vulnerable. I think you, that is a lesson that you've shared with me over the years that's really stayed with me in deep ways. I, and a lot, a lot of people who frankly have never hurt themselves by lifting heavy objects think, I, I, don't, my, you know, I can do it uh, because they've never tried to lift a heavy object that can hurt them. Which is to say, at different points in different people's lives, there can be a weightiness emotionally that can you know, put our backs into spasms. And that just because we are human, we are physical, and our brains and our emotions are part of that physicality. It's no different than our backs. So that's one lesson. And, and what comes out of that, of course, is compassion. I remember as a rabbi going for the first time into a mental ward as a young rabbi and the door locked behind me. I could hear that clang. And I immediately, <laughs> I immediately you know, felt the chill because in all my mental hospitals, I was in a locked ward because I was a suicide patient. And I immediately felt con that confinement that I had felt then. But back to compassion, I remember the first person it was with was a middle-aged man who was suicidal. His business had gone sour. And he was the first person as a congregant that I revealed to him, I said, you know, I was once a mental patient too. And I did it to give him hope and more, just to be honest, to be a person, not a preacher but a caregiver, which meant to share my own vulnerability. And I ultimately wrote that book, Healing from Despair, in honor of turning 50, mm -hmm. because uh, a friend had committed suicide, a rabbi friend. And I went to look at Jewish literature, and there were lots of books on the halachic issues. If you commit suicide, can you be buried in a Jewish cemetery can your family mourn you but there hadn't been an insider's book that i could find on what did judaism have to say about darkness and that's this other piece and that's normalizing that's part one and two moses will say to god if i have to continue to carry the people and i love that you know carry them back to that physicality then just kill me god i can't do it anymore that's Moses's low point. You have Elijah saying, God, better that I not have been born. You have repeated Rebecca in terms of her own infertility. You have people in despair throughout. You have Maimonides later on, who after his brother David dies in a drowning on a ship in the Indian Ocean as a jeweler, will write a letter in which found in the Cairo Geniza, in which he will say he was unable to get out of bed for one year after his brother died, which is to say our most admired Jewish philosopher, a man of such enormous strength as a doctor working day and night, which we also learn from his letters, had a period in his life. It's true for Abraham Lincoln. It's true for Winston Churchill who brought their own encounters with darkness 
Winston Churchill called his lifelong struggle with depression, my black dog, darkness, black dog, a companion darkness. that was always with him, or Abraham Lincoln, who in his 20s had suicide watches of his friends watching him. And some, there's a book called uh, Lincoln and His Melancholy by, Rob, by a man named Shank, says that his own ability to deal with the war that create, caused the most tragedy and most loss in American history, in some sense, he could struggle and hold because he had learned to struggle internally. And so part three, part one is my own awareness of vulnerability. Part two is my awareness that it's the human condition for all peoples that leads to compassion. And three is the sense of hopefulness that the people that we see in the Bible as our role models, the people in the Jewish tradition and in the larger world tradition who got, went on to be some models of fortitude are people who had struggle. And that's reason to be compassionate, normalize it, and to have hope going forward. And last, I, I really, uh, uh, go ahead. The, the fourth, again, the which fourth. I touched on, is that that hope translates into concrete results. So whether for Churchill or Lincoln, Lahav deal, as we would say, for myself in terms of the courage, finding my courage and the opportunity to become a rabbi came out of reaching my low point. Mm -hmm. And so back to where we started in our conversation, we are at a low point. The world has never seen a lockdown like this. In Israel, grandparents separated from their grandchildren just opening up this week. These many weeks of isolation of the most needed and needy enables this moment of you, Azzy, and me to be talking and recording, which we didn't through Zoom before. It's really true. And you know, I. I have so much to acknowledge you for in terms of your sharing your personal struggles. And I want to share with you and with the listeners that I remember when I first heard your story and I, I personally identified with your story because I too have been behind the doors. I've been in the hospital. I've struggled with mental illness. And I remember thinking to myself, I only wish that mine had been encephalitis instead of bipolar or depression, because then I wouldn't feel so much shame about myself. And that was my story for years. It was, I couldn't tell, I couldn't share. There must be something wrong with me that I have this diagnosis. And if only it were something physical. And you know, it's interesting, Rabbi Ali, I think to my great surprise <laughs> over the last few years, especially research has, has really caught up in so many ways and helped me to understand that the body is composed of trillions of cells and we don't completely understand that we were created by something we cannot comprehend and our bodies have that much greatness and intricacy within them and i think that your message of vulnerability no matter who we are i don't think we have to be someone famous to struggle i think that those stories are are models i think they're great models i think that we are all in our own right worthy of experiencing whatever 
this is and whatever comes up. I think so much that it takes people like you really sharing your message and being a model and acknowledging that these emotions can be really, really hard, but it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with a person. That's right. So I just like to react and, and um, share what got evoked as you shared. First, Azria Allah, my hands go to my heart with your own growth of courage to allow you to be transparent and to allow you to be vulnerable in the world. That is what it means to grow in life wiser and stronger. And the second piece that, that you evoked for me was to emphasize that each of us is a role model for somebody. You know, when I talk about Abraham and Lincoln, it's because they're part of our shared discourse. But in our own lives, we all live in relationships. And it's our relationships that give our lives joy and content and where we also find the holy. God's oh, really. I, I, I can't tell you how much I love that. What you just said, we are all role models for someone. Right. Exactly. And for us to have the courage to be ourselves, for your children, you are a role model by virtue of being their mother, but more because they are the person they are in a love, loving and loved relationship with. And we should all know that for each of us, our own challenges are distinctive. Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great rabbi of the 20th century who taught at JTS said, you know, it's remarkable in looking at a face, how few features there are. There's two eyes, a nose, a mouth, hair color. So on some level, there's not that much to work with, but yet every human face is unique. There's never been another you. Even identical twins in the terms of up close and detail are different. And he added, that's not only tr true for our physicality, it's true for our personality and our spirituality. Each of us is unique. There's never been another one of us before, nor will there be again. And in that regard, we all have our own shortcomings. You know, I'm wearing glasses because I don't, I can't find my glasses without my glasses, which, so that's one of my shortcomings. There are many others. And for some, it's the chemical balances within our brain chemistry. And I always think of my older brother, Mark, because he's my older brother, who's a doctor, who says that what he wants and needs to share with his patients is that the chemicals that they take are not drugs, they're chemicals that allow the body to do what it otherwise might do naturally. But we all have some parts of us that are incomplete. And to take chemicals to provide a greater completeness is to meet one area of incompleteness, but we're all trying to be more whole. And we're all, we're all unique more. in how we are in that process of wholeness making. Well, I really appreciate that. And I think that it, it really is so timely in terms of this period that we're in where we've really shifted away from distractions. And we yeah. really had this time and space to focus on 
growing and really pursuing wholeness and having an honest look at what is meaningful in life. So on that note, I, I want to shift over to your book, Does the Soul Survive? And you begin chapter 16. Chapter 16 is called Cultivating the Soul. And it begins with a story. The story is told of a tourist, you write, who traveled from America to Eastern Europe to visit the renowned scholar and righteous, the Hafez Haim, Israel Merkagan of Lithuania, 1838 to 1933. He came in and saw a bed, a chair, a table, a cupboard, a closet, and a bookcase. The tourist was shocked and asked the sage, where are your possessions? Where are yours? The Hafetzhaim replied. What kind of question is that? The tourist said, I'm a visitor here. I am too, the sage replied. Right. I'm curious if you could speak to that, Rabbi Ellie. When you share that story, when you recall that story, what does it mean for you that we, like the sage, are visitors? So I begin with hearing my mother's voice, who I seem to quote more than anybody of all my teachers. And I don't know if she knew this story from the Chafetz Chaim or not, probably not, but she would say in her own wisdom, we're all here for a visit, which is a way to say that our lives are transient, but a visitor also is coming from a place and going to a place. So implicit in that image of being a visitor like the Chafetz Chaim, is that we come from God and we will return to a place of encountering God's presence, a world to come. How beautiful. So, we come from God and we return to a place of encountering God's presence. Right. So to be a visitor is to say we're going yet to return to home. It's a belief as well in survival of the soul. But interestingly, that story, as uh, I'm glad you brought it to my and your listeners' attention, is at the beginning of the chapter that it's about living with purpose. And when I think of the Chafetz Chaim, his name comes, comes from the Psalm, I believe 133, that I, you know, the one who yearns for God is the one who guards one's tongue. And the Chafetz Chaim was famous for many writings, including Mishnah Brura, his, it's not 133, but <clears throat> bottom line, the Chafetz Chaim wrote the Mishnah Brura, which was his commentary on the Shochan Aruch. He was a great scholar, but his name, Yisrael Kagan, but his name that he was known by is the one who seeks life, which was about may my lips be guarded from speaking ill of others. That it is about being a visitor, how we live now that defines the trajectory of our consciousness that enables the quality of our lives and our sages would teach 
the quality of our closeness to God in the world to come. This life of the eternal soul, the soul that comes from and returns to the infinite God. You speak further in the same chapter and you write, soul repair work begins with our willingness to look at ourselves honestly and to change if needed. Now, suppose in this time of introspection, in this time that we're in, suppose one is looking to turn over a new leaf and to really begin doing this work of living conscious of one's soul, of becoming willing to look at oneself honestly. Rev. Ellie, where would you where would you advise to begin with this process? For the process of growth and awareness, for me, the easiest place to grow is by identifying who our heroes are. To choose one person who models a quality that you find uplifting, that helps concretize what otherwise is theoretical for me. And that's the nature of developing character or qualities of goodness. There is no one person that I want to be other than myself. So when I say find a hero, a gibor, somebody who's mighty of character, it's not to find the person that you want to be them. It's to find people who you admire to be more like them. That's holy envy. As Israel Salanter taught, the great teacher of Musser, when it says you shall not covet, it's to covet physical qualities, their house, their wife, but to, to covet their ability to love learning, their ability to be kind or to be patient. Uh, those are holy jealousies to want to grow with. So in sum, what I would say is a place to begin in the positive sense is who do you admire? And then find what is the the key quality about that person you so admire. And in most cases, it won't be these public figures, Abraham or Lincoln or Maimonides. It will be a family member. It'll be a dear friend. It'll be a teacher, somebody who's not famous at all, but who, in terms of the quality of relationship, qualities of character, has modeled for you and that you would then want to imitate. And then the last thought, the teaching of Rabbi Abe Tversky, since we are now in the midst of our Sfirot, I believe today is the 28th day of the counting of the Sfira. And the teaching of Rabbi Tversky is that in terms of making change, people often make New Year's resolutions that they don't stick with because they're too big an idea and that the wisdom of our mystics, of our Kabbalists, in terms of every day and being a narrow focus of a tikkun, in that being the case, with today being dignity within ambition, with that being the case, being narrow and taking life one day at a time. 
all change can only incur, occur with small increments and steadiness of purpose. Small increments and steadiness of purpose. And you are coming back to this idea of presence, really being here now in this moment. And I, I find that to be a fascinating contrast, being here in this moment and then knowing, as you speak about throughout the book, that there is this place of presence, of godly presence, to which we will go after we pass through. And I'm curious, I, I definitely want to get into what that looks like for you. And also the idea of perhaps connecting with that world while we are here on earth and what that can look like. I know in your book, you speak about several different experiences, recalling past lives and connecting with those on the other side. So I'm curious if you could share a little bit with us about that world, which you discovered. So where my Jewish mind first goes is the teaching that Shabbat is a taste of Olam Haba, the world to come, which is to say Shabbat is an act of the imagination for me, meaning it's a day in the week, all the more we're now in quarantine, every day looks alike. It's a choice to say this day is cosmically imprinted to be set apart from the other six days. In fact, Shabbat is the first thing that's called holy. Holy is a three-step move, which will lead me to responding more directly to your comment, Azri Ella, in the last 10 minutes that we have together to Great. explore what does this world to come mean? What does survival of the soul mean? So I start with holiness, because holiness is what we use in our religious language as both the encounter of the divine and our tapping the divine for how to be our best. Shabbat is a three-step move. It's setting apart one day from the other six. It's in that separation choosing to see everything as interconnected and in harmony, wholeness. That's an act of the imagination. And third, in doing so, it's to elevate ourselves on some intuitive level to feel the blessings, the goodness, the connectedness, and even the merging with the one of the world and of the source of the world the source of creation, the source of love. And so holiness is that three-step process of distinction-making, imaginatively choosing to see wholeness, and then intuitively, in unexpected ways, feeling holiness of moment. Rather than talking about what people believe about God as a teacher of the sacred, I will say to people, when have you felt close to God? Or if you will, tell me about a holy moment. In regard to the world to come, I have no clue what the world to come is like. And here's why. 
because I'm in a body. When I think of Ellie, I think of the voice you're hearing, the person you see in the mirror. In this moment, for us who are alive, our sensibility literally is through our senses. Maimonides said, to describe the world to come is like describing color to a blind person, meaning a whole mm. set of senses or experiences that aren't part of that person's experience. You can say, regarding color, by using that metaphor, that red is hot and blue is cold, but it's not. It's <laughs> a different kind of experience. And to say Ellie is going to be in the world to come, I don't know what that means. And as I'm saying this, it's a teaching of Rabbi Harold Kushner, which is to say, as he did, if you say to me, I'm going to survive as Harold, but not without a body, I don't know who that is. And yet, and yet, what I've grown to believe in being with people around death and dying and in my own meditative states is that there is this quality of tasting knowledge, wholeness, holiness that transcends our rational mind. It's not irrational, but it's non-rational. And it points for me to the belief that when a person dies, their quality of awareness and consciousness persists outside of their bodies, that their mind is more than their brain. I talked about how the brain is a chemical laboratory that can sometimes need tweaking of those chemicals. But it's also a bit like a, you know, a big screen television. You get all these pictures coming in with signals that you really don't see directly. I do believe, and it's a matter of belief rather than proof to a great degree, that we are in a world in which there is a divine energy a quality of consciousness, a quality of love that we at our best, at our quietest, at our most present can become receivers for. And when we receive those signals, we encounter the holy. Incredible that you bring up this concept of rather than describing God, which we do not have the facilities to do. It's more about this experience. There's an experience beyond words. We can try to describe it, but it is this holy moment that you share, this idea of having a holy moment. On that note, Rabbi Ellie, I want to thank you so much for being here. And you have so much to share. And I'm going to link in the notes to the show all of your books. But if you, if, if you could share with the listeners a brief overview. So the first book that I wrote, now in a second edition that came out in 2015, but in 2000, 20 years ago, I wrote Does the Soul Survive? Um, a Jewish Journey Belief in Afterlife, Past Lives, and Living with Purpose. I'll add it's been translated into Portuguese last year as well. And it was very gratifying for me to wow. teach in Brazil. 
this last year. Incredible. The second book that I wrote in honor of turning 50, as I noted, was Healing from Despair. Choosing Wholeness in a Broken World was, was my way of making sense of what was for me the most painful period of my life, but also the most growthful. And largely as a rabbi who does lots of counseling to normalize darkness. The extreme is clinical depression, but everybody in life has moments of pain, emotional pain that requires normalization and hope making. And the last book that I wrote was in 2015, also published all three by Jewish Lights Publishing. I love this one so much. This book allowed me to do something I'd been wanting to do, which was record guided meditations. In Jerusalem, I had an important teacher, Colette Albuka Muscat. I spent a year with my wife learning guided meditation with her in Laguna Beach, closer to my home. There was a wonderful teacher named Mariel Fuller, and guided meditation has been something that is an important tool for delving into our inner life for me, wakeful dreaming. Wakeful dreaming. Wakeful dreaming. And so this is that journey of the five worlds of Jewish mysticism, the physical, emotional, intellectual, intuitive, and the hands-on of doing that I sought to create. The last I will uh, add is there's a website for my synagogue, cbi18.org, cbi18.org. I teach a psalm a day, three days a week in great depth. And I have students coming from far and wide. Surprise me. I am so exciting. I have found such joy in now taking hours to prepare each one with classic commentators, modern commentators, to appreciate the artistry of the poems, of the love songs, the pain songs to God has been an awakening and an enlargening of my own spirituality. There are also other opportunities, services do with this opportunity of the internet do come and join me in other moments. How, what a beautiful invitation. Rabbi Ellie, you are a gift. You are a gift. <laughs> and as are you, Elsie. Thank Truly. you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me. And you are a gift, my friends. Thank you for being here and thank you for joining me. I have a few opportunities that I want to share with you. You may have heard that two of my past podcast guests, Dave and Hannah Mason, are launching a course and they're also giving away their book, The Size of Your Dreams, for free. So if you haven't listened to my episodes with Hannah and Dave yet, I definitely recommend going back and giving those a listen. You can listen to Dave in episode 34 talking all about the size of your dreams book and they're all about envisioning, dreaming, and building really practical action steps you can take to move forward in your life. That's in episode 34. And then if you want to hear Hana talk about her incredible book, Hold That Thought, all about these thought tools that we can use in order to refine our minds, refine our mindset, and live our best life, you can check out episode 26. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining me. And 
I am so excited that I have met so many of you now in my meditation circles. I am facilitating meditation circles, spiritual growth circles, and coming soon a circle in support of mental well-being. I'm so excited about it. The best way to find out about these circles and to sign up is just to hop over to my website, drozzy.co, and enter your email address, and I'll send you a weekly short email with some inspiration, and you'll also stay up with all of the in-person or virtual experiences that are happening around what's presented on this show and the transformational tools that I am seeking to impart. Thank you so much again for being here. Check out the show notes for links to get in touch with Ellie and everything else that we talked about in this phenomenal episode with Rabbi Ellie Spitz. Wherever you are in the world, I hope that you're meeting yourself with kindness. And until next time, abundant blessings.